Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. As I think Alan mentioned last week, we're heading back to John. So we are in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. And so I'm just going to have him talk about how this fits within the Revised Common Lectionary. Well, as we talked about last week, um, um, unfortunately, the Revised Common Lectionary skips over Mark's version of the feeding of the 5,000. Um, the reason they do that is because we have John's version this week. And to some extent, I understand that. Uh, I guess they wanted to avoid the repetition. I think um, it's a missed opportunity because, as we saw last week, Mark has some unique uh, perceptions on, on the, uh, the whole event. And we're going to find out this week that that's very different in John's gospel. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, basically... Uh, and 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 we're basically we're, we're going to be spending five weeks on John chapter six, uh, starting today, mm-hmm. and so um, the part of the reason for that is that in John chapter six, um, the account of the feeding of the five thousand basically serves as a platform for the bread of life discourse, and that's really kind of the point of everything in John chapter six mm-hmm. is that bread of life discourse. Now, the fact that John says that the Passover was near may help connect this with the Eucharistic implications of the Bread of Life discourse, mm-hmm. since Passover, I think, yeah. would have, by the time you know John's gospel was written, it would have been linked with the Lord's Supper in Christian community. I think one of the things we find that's interesting about John's gospel is when you do a close reading of the account of the miracle here, uh, you find some unique details not found anywhere else. Like mm-hmm. right off the bat, uh, John's gospel mentions that the Sea of Galilee was also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Mm-hmm. Well, that's actually still true today, but only John tells us that in the New Testament. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And we'll see more of these details as we go along. And based on this, basically, if you take the accounts of feeding miracles in all the gospels, some scholars try to reconstruct you know, how this, how this story came to be told. But many have concluded that John's account is basically another version of the story, and it's not really dependent on any of the synoptic accounts. So, so perhaps John is, has access to a unique source here. Mm-hmm. I do have a question for you. Um, Kind of on that, because John's gospel obviously takes place over three years as opposed to one year. And right. so does that impact this story in some way? Uh, it could, definitely could, because um, um, as opposed, you know, many have, have recognized that the synoptic chronology could easily fit into one year, mm-hmm. a one-year ministry. Mm-hmm. And, and the way Mark especially narrates the story, I think that makes sense. Um, John mentions a number of festivals and mm-hmm. uses those festivals to sort of, as a, as a sort of chronology. I think we've we mentioned this before when we jumped into John's gospel. I don't really think that we're meant to take John's chronology literally right, right. myself. Yeah, yeah. I, I would be more likely to go with the synoptic chronology. Right. I guess my, 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 my point here was not so much whether on the chronology, but just how this is per, this particular incident is portrayed. Does this connected um, with the Passover con- connected with? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, again, frankly, I, I would see theological motivations behind that because um, I, I think with the bread uh, of life sure, discourse sure. and the bread from heaven right. and, and the question that the that the crowd raises, I think I think John is is trying to to connect that with the Passover. Okay, so let's uh, jump into how John introduces this story. Yeah, so John introduces uh, the story in a bit of a similar way that a large crowd was following Jesus because they saw the signs he was doing for the sick. Mm -hmm. So again, as in Mark's gospel, we see that it was, you know, some of the, the, the healings that he was performing. But John uses this word signs. Now, um, not all of Jesus' signs in John's gospel were for the sick. Um, um, 
as he identifies here, but the mention of the signs, I think, that Jesus was doing calls to mind this whole theme in John's gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and later in, in this chapter, John will specifically identify this as one of the signs. And, and, and we should see the signs again in light of the statement in John 2.11 that this was the means by which Jesus revealed his glory, which basically means that um, these, these were the way, this was the way in which he demonstrated what he was about and what God's kingdom was about. And so they reveal his glory, which in John's gospel, his, Jesus being glorified culminates with his being lifted up on the cross in order to draw people to himself and then also ascending into, into the right hand of God again. So these signs then were the means by which Jesus was revealing, we might say, the light that he was bringing into the darkness, mm-hmm, to use a Johannine mm-hmm, mm-hmm. phraseology. So, um, okay, we're moving on. And Jesus, the first thing we head up the mountain. Yeah, that's that's an interesting detail with John's gospel. <laughs> it, it's it's and, and we were talking about this in preparation. Right. You know, it's like how how would you be able to 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 go from from um, uh, the boat, I guess, to this from the Sea of Galilee to to going up the mountain. And if you look at a topographical map of the Sea of Galilee, you see that, uh, especially on the um, eastern side of the sea, there are some there's some fairly steep um, um, geography there, right, just adjacent to the sea. Mm-hmm. And so apparently, uh, we're meant to understand that that's what happened: is that they mm-hmm. they they went up into that into that uh, territory. Um, inter- you know, as I mentioned last week, um, there's no mention of Jesus teaching the crowd, as we saw mm-hmm. in Mark's gospel, probably because, again, the whole point of this passage is the bread of life discourse that's placed after this, mm-hmm. uh, when Jesus is back across the lake, uh, interestingly, <laughs> in John's yeah. gospel. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So it has a little bit different... Different setup for us, it, but, it but is. that again theologically motiv- motivated here. I think so. Makes sense. I okay. think so. Now, uh, John just tells us that Jesus simply sees the crowd and then asks Philip. Again, this is only found in John's Gospel, where they were going to buy food to feed them. And again, only John tells us that Jesus asked this to test him and the word is pyrazo which mm-hmm. we've seen before can have a negative or a positive connotation it's the same word for tempting and testing mm-hmm. so jesus says this to test him for he himself knew what he was going to do and that's an i think that's a uniquely johannine statement you know we've seen before that that john's portrayal of jesus is one in which jesus knows what's going to happen from the very beginning, from the very beginning of right. the gospel, Jesus right. knows right. that he is going to be crucified and, and, and predicts his resurrection, you know. So, so th- this is very consistent with that. You know, Jesus in, the John, in John's gospel knows what he's going to do, and that's, that's what John says here. Now, Philip responds to him in a way that's similar to, the one, to Mark's gospel. 200 denarii, I would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little in John right, 6, 7. Right. Now, for some reason, and I'm not sure why, the editors of the New Revised Standard Version translate the, this passage as six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. Mm. And, and so why they translated why did, 200 denarii in Mark and six months' wages in John is 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 interesting to me because, or a little bit confusing to me because, I mean, both would fit in both cases, but why weren't they consistent about it? I mean, to me, it suggests some inconsistency in the editing of the, of the, uh, yeah, of you the think, translation. You think? <laughs> yeah. So there you go, everyone. Have fun with that. <laughs> no, those things are... Those things are interesting. I, sorry, this is really an aside, but I am amused how there's this assumption of how Jesus needs to feed these people. Clearly, they there's some understanding they don't have food with them. Right. I mean, somehow right. that that's clear, right. and and there's a sense right away that that physical, at least in John's gospel, has to be met. Yes. Um, and that takes priority, that as takes opposed priority. to what we were talking about last week. Mm-hmm. You know that that uh, the reformers saw that you know you seek the kingdom first, and then all these things will be given to you. So you seek the spiritual food first, and then you get the physical food. Well, it's reversed in John's gospel. You know they have to be fed first, and then you yeah. have the bread of life discourse. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
So let's move on. And what, what happens with... So in response then to all of this, Andrew, again, only Andrew, only in John's gospel does Andrew mention, brings to their attention that there's a boy, again, this detail is only found in John's gospel, with five barley loaves. They're only identified as barley loaves Mm -hmm. in John's gospel and two fish. So I find the details of naming the individual disciples, Mm -hmm. Philip and Andrew, the identification of the boy who had the food and the mention that they were barley loaves interesting. And I think this is kind of characteristic of John's narrative strategy. As I've said before, uh, John tends to include details that the synoptics often gloss over. Most most gospel scholars would say that John is dependent on his own sources, right, for yeah. these kinds of inform- this kind of information. And so I find it interesting that that we have these details in John's gospel. Mm-hmm. Now Andrew is customarily identified as Simon Peter's brother or associated with Peter in the gospel tradition as he is here. Mm-hmm. That's that's sort of customary for Andrew, which is I almost feel sad for Andrew because you know it's like he doesn't have his own identity. His identity is he's the brother of Simon Peter. Right. <laughs> right. It's really interesting. But Andrew's not optimistic about about, you know, he he bring he draws attention to the boy and the f- five loaves and fishes, but um, he's not optimistic and he says, "What are they among so many people?" Which is kind of obvious, yeah, right? Yeah, right. Well, I, I, that's kind of how I, I, why hand out this little right. when we can't begin to meet the need of the crowd. Right. I mean, I think that's a very human response. Might as well just keep it back instead of let some get some. That's going to cause the, that's going to cause the, 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 the wild rampage, right? Right. Well, I mean, five loaves and two fish might have been enough for a meal for a family of four. Right, right, yeah. I, I mean, agree. I agree. We we look at food differently in in the Western world. I had the chance to 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 spend a couple of months teaching in the Philippines, and you know it was it was staffed by American missionaries, and fortunately, unfortunately, they made special provisions for us, which meant we got much more meat right. protein with our meal. The Filipinos ate mostly rice. And a little bit of meat, a little bit of uh, meat protein, with with some vegetables. But it was mostly a a, mm-hmm. a, a, a diet of rice. And um, I think we have to understand that most of the world does not eat the way we do. Right. Of course. And so, so yeah, I would say five loaves and two fish might have fed a family of four. Or, you know, I think a so. loaf, a I loaf for so. each, yeah. or maybe a family of five, a loaf for each person, and right. a little bit of fish for well, each one. And another aside, they they estimate what a two thousand calorie a day diet. So they're probably talking about subsistence on a much lower yes. calorie basis oh, as well. Yes. Oh yes, definitely. Um, so. You know, in response, Jesus just replies, make the people sit down. And John also adds that there was a great deal of grass in the place. Unfortunately, again, the new RSV varies the translation of the size of the crowd from Mark's account. Now, just Mm -hmm. as a reminder, in Mark 6.44, we find those who had eaten the loaves numbered 5,000 men. And again, in the Greek, it's androi. And so, as we mentioned last week, the implication is that there were likely also women and children with them, and so that the actual size of the crowd was much larger. Here, the editors go with translating the phrase in John, they sat down about 5,000 in all, which if you just read that, it sounds like the whole crowd is 5,000, right? Mm -hmm. But the Greek text reads, the men sat down. And again, the word is Hoy Andres, the, the it's the Andres, it's the it's, oh, the, it's males. the males, it's the, the male males count. sat down, and so the count is of the males. And I would assume that the new RSV translated it this that they sat down for the sake of gender neutrality, since again, presumably there were right. women and children in the crowd, and they also sat. But I think here that translation strategy actually obscures the text. And uh, mm-hmm. so, I mean, I, I get what they were trying to do, but uh, I think it's unfortunate here because I think the Greek text is meant to say there were 5,000 men in the crowd. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I, I find this interesting anyway. Um, no one probably sat and counted them. I think they're, I <laughs> right. mean, you know, I'm thinking about this. I think it's really, we're looking out on the crowd mm-hmm. and this is what it looks like. And mm-hmm. I think 5,000 also relates to a military number. Um that people would have a pretty good mm-hmm. idea what that looked like, but I don't think they 
counted them exactly. No, I mean, I'm if, sure they didn't. Uh, so, <clears throat> but know, the tradition is consistent, right, throughout all four Gospels. Right. Okay. Moving on, then, um, um, how how does J- John have Jesus bless the meal? How's yeah. Well, again, as in all the Gospels, the actual miracle that takes place here is very much understated and, and perhaps overlooked. Uh, I'd say John's gospel makes it a bit more specific. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. That's John 6, 11. Mm -hmm. Now, one point I think to notice here is that only John's gospel says that Jesus gave thanks, and the verb is eucharisteo. Which, from which, of course, mm-hmm. we get the, the term Eucharist, which mm-hmm. we use for, for communion. And I think that choice of language was intentional. All three of the synoptic Gospels use the, ver, use the word that Jesus blessed the food, and it's eulogeo, which was, uh, that was the common word for bless. Um, and as I mentioned last week, even the language of this whole section in the synoptics is almost verbatim in, mm. in Matthew 14 and Mark 6 and Luke 9. Um, but I think John uses the word give thanks, eucharist, eucharisteo, as a pointer, sort of as a, as a clue that, you know, there are going to be some Eucharistic themes that are going to come up because, mm-hmm. because really, I mean, the whole, the, the bread of life discourse is infused with Eucharistic right, themes. Right. And so I think this is meant as a pointer toward that. <clears throat> now, another thing here, I think, uh, is that in the synoptics, Jesus gives the food to the disciples and they distribute it. Here, Jesus distributes the food to those who were seated. Yes. Isn't that amazing? I, I don't, I mean, that Jesus himself distributed the food to the, the whole crowd. Right. And again, I almost see this again as enhancing the Eucharistic undertones that he himself gives the food to mm-hmm. the whole crowd, <laughs> which seems hard to, hard to fathom. I mean, one wonders just simply how he was able to distribute as much as they wanted, right? Right. To the crowd from five loaves and two fish. And, and John also adds the statement that they were satisfied, or the word is literally, they were filled. Again, reiterating that the seated crowd ate as much as they wanted. And so again, just as in the Synoptic Gospels, um, after this, the disciples gather up the fragments of the loaves. And, and here in John's Gospel, it's at Jesus' prompting. Jesus says, you know, gather it up so that nothing may be lost which probably has worked its way into Eucharistic theology in some way or another. <laughs> mm-hmm, right. <laughs> and right. again, uh, the fragments fill 12 baskets. So, you know, the basic story is fr- pretty much the same, but John has some unique uh, details here that he emphasizes. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think the, the, the use of the word Eucharisteo and the fact that Jesus himself distributes the right. food. Right, I think I so think too. that highlights the Eucharistic themes that are going to come up. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus is the one who gives himself as the bread of life for the world, basically in the bread of life discourse. That's the theme. After this story, this this changes even more. John goes differently than a synoptic. So what happens now? Yeah, so um, in the first place, we have the reaction of the crowd. You know, uh, in Mark's gospel, as I mentioned last week, I'm not even sure the people knew that there was a miracle that happened. And, of course, they continued to throng after him, mainly because they were healing. They were seeking healing. Mm-hmm. But in John's gospel, the people, and interestingly, the Greek text has anthropoi here, and I mm-hmm. would agree with that translation. They saw the sign, that's semion, mm-hmm. you know, that's this sign idea that, that we find in John's gospel. Where the people saw the sign that he had done. Now, you know, again, I'm not even sure the disciples knew what had happened. I mean, Mark says that they didn't understand about the loaves. Right. And, you know, maybe the crowd wasn't even aware of it. But in John's gospel, this is one of the signs by which Jesus revealed his glory. And the result is that the crowd not only sees it and recognizes it, but they're convinced that this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world in John 6, 14. And John also tells us that Jesus realized they were about to come and take him by force to make, his, make him king. Yes. Ah. <laughs> yeah, and that's always seemed to me to be a strange way to respond to this miracle, but apparently it made perfect sense 
to the authors and or editors of John's Gospel. And of course, both of these notions, the prophet who is to come and, and the true king, right. um, these, are, these are connected with Jewish messianic expectations. Right, right, exactly, yeah. So faced with this reaction from the crowd, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself, Perhaps to pray, we're not told that in John's gospel, but that seems to be the implication. I mean, clearly in Mark's gospel, Jesus withdraws to pray. We're not told why. Here, we know why Jesus withdraws, <laughs> because, right. because they're, they, they want to make him king, right. but we're not right. told what Jesus does when he withdraws. Exactly. Um, and so, um, then what happens? Now we see this, this account of this, this walking on the, on the, wa- on right. the water again. And, and this, again, this follows really in Mark's account. I, I believe it's also in Matthew and Luke's account. Mm-hmm. You know, they have the same sequence. Um, uh, John proceeds to recount Jesus walking on the water. He says, he says, however, that the disciples were headed to Capernaum. Now, you know, initially, supposedly they went toward Bethsaida. They wound up in Gennesaret in, in Mark's gospel. In John's gospel, they're going to Capernaum. Now, part of what we have to understand is that these cities weren't very far from each other. But it's interesting that there's a variation here. So then the narrative points out that the sea became rough because of a strong wind and specifically tells us that the disciples had rowed about three or four miles. Now, again, this I think about Mark's, Mark's episode where Jesus sees them at sea you know, uh, struggling against the wind. Well, if there's a wind, you don't think it would be a moonlit night where they would be able to just, um, you know, he would be able to just have a clear sight of the whole sea, you know. So, and would it be the only boat on the water? I don't know. So, um, just kind of reflecting on last week's account about how Jesus saw them. It doesn't even say that. It just says that it doesn't say that Jesus saw them. It just says that the disciples were were battling the sea and they'd rowed about three or four right. miles. About yeah. So they're about halfway. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Now. Um, you know, John simply says, you know, that, that the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. We're not told why Jesus was even walking across the sea, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, I guess he just decided because to go for a midnight no. stroll, right? Because he can. Right, because he can, right? No, no, no. That's, that's probably not the case. No, I don't think that's the case. Sorry. Uh, I, I think what that does, though, is that John's gospel focuses this, this story even more so on the nature of this event as a Christophany or a theophany. Right. Because, right. you know, John is, Jesus is walking on the sea and coming near the boat. You know, we've seen already that that was something that, that revealed to yes. them his identity. And of course, John also tells us that the disciples were terrified. Uh, doesn't include the notion that they thought he was a ghost. But as in Mark's gospel, John reports that Jesus identifies himself with, it is I, do not be, be afraid. afraid. Literally, ego I me. You know, that's go. the statement. Yep. And now, as a, you know, we don't find this much in Mark's gospel, but the, this is a theme in John's yes, gospel. Yes, it is. There yes. are several times when Jesus uses this formula to identify himself, including later in the chapter when he will say, I am the bread of life mm-hmm. in John 6.35. Um, and and the most the most notable uh, um, example of this theme is in the statement in John eight fifty eight. Truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am ego I me. Right. After he said and after he said this, the, the crowd took up stones, you know, to stone him because they knew right. what he was saying. Right. He was identifying himself with um, with God. You know, again, I think. John's gospel, John's account just simply even serves to highlight even more the fact that this, this event of walking on the sea, perhaps Jesus was doing it intentionally as a means of revealing his identity mm-hmm, as, mm-hmm. as I am yeah. to the disciples. Yeah, it has, um, has, has a different sense about it than the Mark mm-hmm. passage, right? The Mark passage is, is more about the saving and the, and this is more about, um, as you said, kind of a, a Christophany. I think that makes, I mean, not that that's not there, Mark, mm-hmm. but I think here it, it emphasizes, emphasizes it more. It more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So does he get in the boat? <laughs> he gets in the boat. And in fact, John tells us that they wanted him to get in the boat, which is interesting. And I guess pre- reflects on their previous response of fear and shows a change of heart on the disciples part. And I think it's important for us to note that. Mm-hmm. 
Now, I one of the, you know we come to into a detail in John's gospel that I've always found very strange. Instead of the wind ceasing when Jesus got in the boat, which makes sense, right? Because right. he's already calmed the storm. Uh, John tells us that immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. So um, they must have gone four miles in an instant, right? Right, right. <laughs> and interesting. that's just kind of baffling to me. I, I think it's strange that they have that kind of um, account. Now, you know, these, these, um, the, this is not the only place in the New Testament where something like this is mentioned. Uh, mm-hmm. Philip, you know, is, is ministering to the Ethiopian official, right. and all of a sudden the Spirit takes him up and he's somewhere else. Right. Ezekiel, right, yes. is taken yeah, in the course, Spirit to Jerusalem right. from Babylon. Right. So, so we have these things, but um, this is, to my knowledge, the only place where it involves a whole boat and the, whole, and, and the people in it. Right, <laughs> right. And we could try to explain it i don't think we need to no it, i don't think so either i just think it's i think it's interesting that i think it again shows the uniqueness of john's account and perhaps the uniqueness of john's source that, i agree this this detail is here yeah right exactly all right so one of the pieces of course are the disciples um within this whole story that they they have they're more active. So yeah. Tell us about well, that. And, and not only are they more active, they're also more positive. The role of the disciples here is much more positive than what we saw mm-hmm. in Mark's gospel. They have more of an awareness of the miracle that Jesus performs. And in fact, they seem to take it in stride. I mean, it's like no big deal to them because they've seen the other things that Jesus did. I mean, he turned water into wine. He, you know, they've already seen that. He's done other things. You know, he's healed paralytic. Um, and, and, and um, so they just seem to take it in stride. And so I think, I think in John's gospel, you have a very different image of the disciples. They are definitely not clueless. They get Jesus in John's gospel. Mm-hmm. Though, as we see in this passage, they are capable of fear. And in other places in John's gospel, they are certainly able to misunderstand Jesus. But overall, we have a much more positive portrayal of the disciples in John's gospel in the, than, mm-hmm. than we do in the synoptics, and most certainly in Mark. You don't have anything like what we had in Mark with, with uh, <laughs> their hearts the hard were hearts. hard. And, yeah. <laughs> You know, that that's right. That's not yeah. I don't think that's even conceivable in John's gospel that the disciples would have had hard hearts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the role of the crowd is also played up much more in this chapter because, um, you know, as we said before, I'm really not sure that in Mark's gospel, we're meant to see that the crowd right. even understands that there's a miracle. But in 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 John's gospel, they don't even, they not only know that Jesus fed them right. by performing a sign or a miracle, but they seek him out and seek to make him king for that exactly. reason. Exactly. There's this whole this whole play on they want to make him king for showing the sign, and right. that's a very that's a very different space as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely, mm-hmm. definitely. And so finally. Um, just how this relates um, to the discourse as a whole. I mean, let's finish it up. Yeah, well, in John's gospel, as I said before, this story really uh, contributes to the theme of the signs Jesus performed to reveal his glory. Unlike other signs, however, this one is accompanied by an extended discourse. And I would say that it would seem that the main purpose for recounting the feeding miracle in John's gospel is to set the stage for the bread of life discourse Mm -hmm. where Jesus is going to make some rather surprising claims. As George R. Beasley Murray says in his commentary on John, the feeding miracle is understood as a celebration of the feast of the kingdom of God in the present, anticipating its continual celebration in the church's worship and its ultimate fulfillment in the last day. If you, that sounds familiar to you from the liturgy of the communion of our communion service, then it should, mm-hmm. because I think that's the point that Beasley Murray is making: is that that all of this plays into the theme, uh, the, the Eucharistic ideas that Jesus is going to stress about giving Himself as the bread of life for the mm-hmm. world. It's pretty awesome how John does this. Yes, it yeah. is. Yes, it I is. I mean, it really takes a story and makes it into much more than a story. Um, and uh, what does this, in, in other words, what does, what does the story really mean? And, and um, when you think about the great things revealed here, I think it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, and we're going to see as we take our trip through John six, you know, um, the, 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 the ideas related to the, um, the Eucharist, uh, the Lord's supper or communion, mm-hmm. whatever word you want to use for it. That's, 
it's just a, uh, very much a, um, a big part of what's going on in this chapter. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and we're going to see, I mean, you know, there's a very robust Eucharistic theology right. in John chapter right. 6. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you, and we'll be back. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to let Christy take a turn uh, sharing us her insights from the reformers. So take it away, Christy. Yeah, sure. So there's, there's, this is this verse has had some interesting um, impact on the reformers. And I think one of the the biggest ones um, is really this division you get between the Roman Catholic um, scholars and the Protestant scholars. And that really has to do with the nature of the disciples. Um, And it again, kind of ties a little bit back to the Mark passage we did last week, but um, also to this one today, as, as we pointed out just a little bit ago, that the disciples take a more active role. So in Roman Catholic tradition, and I think this really relates back to the medieval church, this, this idea that um, the saints, the disciples would be above your kind of average person. And so when you're looking at kind of a Neoplatonic idea of, you know, God is all spirit and is way above, the disciples are not that far underneath. They are they're they're better than your average human. They're spiritual. They're saints of the church. Well, and saints are people who are intermediaries with God. Exactly. Right? So there's this idea they can't be can't be this base, and they really can't fall to um, this idea that they they are clueless. So how do they how do they justify this? Well, they do, and they explain away these pieces where the disciples seem clueless. They explain it away as a means for other people um, so that they can understand how to come to faith. And they, they explain it away. So it's almost like they're play acting on, beha- on, on the benefit of those who are witnessing it. Right. So like in this John passage where you have Andrew um, saying, look, I only have, you know, we have a, a little boy here with the, the two fish and the five loaves, and we have the... Um, and we have Philip as well, who's kind of in this um, th- this space of saying, well, we can't, we don't have enough money. And, and the combination, they explain it away. They just completely explain that away as saying they didn't have to ask these questions. They knew, you know, Christ knew what was going to happen. They knew they would be able to feed the crowds. This was only a part of the display to heighten the significance of the miracle but they understood really what was going to happen so so my mind my, in my mind it's like um in their in their theology philip and andrew are playing straight men for jesus yes. to set him up for the miracle I, exactly exactly <laughs> but i think that's important because there's this shift with the protestant reformers to recognize more the humanity mm. of these disciples and more about their own failings and really as an example for how if they can have failings, so can all of us, mm. and that we are really all sinners. Yeah. So you're coming, it, it really provides a, a backdrop for a mm. Protestant theology as opposed to this Roman Catholic theology. And then again, and it's, it's significant as well, because in the Roman Catholic Church, you're placing these churchmen above everybody, all the common folks, right? So you've got your pope and your bishops and your priests and they all are they all walk in an elevated position of elevated spirituality compared to nope you're a sinner too we're all sinners um and i think that's a i think that's a real important space and while they don't use this as an example i think just the way they treat the disciples where clearly these samples of the humanity of the disciples um Kind of reminds me of a conversation we had some time ago about how you envision theology and how the medieval Catholic Church, you know, had this theology, but whereby uh, the risen Christ was sort of not only the Savior, but also the ideal to which we're striving, mm-hmm. and and so so there is this sense of of you know that 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 you know 
we, 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 we want to mortify everything that's human. We want to get rid of everything that makes us human. And we want to strive to, 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 that, to live up to that example. Whereas, you know, in the Protestant church, you have this more of a sense of starting maybe from below as opposed to from above that, you know, we're human and we're flawed and we're fallen and we all are. Mm-hmm whether mm-hmm. we're a priest or a bishop or a pope, and, and we're all dependent upon God's grace. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I, think, I think we see that. You I, know, we there, definitely there is see that, that. There is that clear, clear definition between the Catholic tradition and the Protestant right. tradition. Right. Yeah, exactly. So that's one of the main pieces I wanted to point out to you all. I think another one that I think um, Alan might have fun with is this idea that um, of grace versus the the law and they mm. look at the boy as an example of the law <laughs> <laughs> really yeah yeah and so this idea that the law it, it, it runs short there's not enough in the in, uh. the in the in the fishes and the loaves to hand out to everybody the law is too limiting you have to rely on the grace of god that's what feeds the people so the law is the boy with only five fi- five loaves and two fish yes, yes. grace is jesus feeding exactly the isn't that fun well uh, I, i'm not sure i would say fun i'm a little <laughs> bit mortified by that actually because poor kid all he did was offer his, his I food know, i know it goes way too <laughs> far and that's not everybody that was that was just one reformer that made that observation but again you know when we're talking about protestant theology we're talking about relying on grace this was they read if you will they read this into well it, and I, you know Jesus. i'll have to admit you know i have i have certain theological emphases that i really stress and so one day probably someone will look back on all the sermons i've posted on on my web blog and and they'll say boy you know, this guy really read new creation into everything. Yes. Well, <laughs> don't we only just have one sermon, right? That's the whole, that's the whole joke of it. You're right. But I think the, the main thing I wanted to, to pull out, it's this last piece, is really this space of popular piety that, that Calvin really influences, that this passage is to be used to affect Christian behavior. And this idea that we should... Um, make sure that we bless, and I mentioned this last week, that we should be blessing and be thankful for the food that we receive, for all the blessings that we receive. And so they want us, to, and I think this might tie into the John's Eucharistic theology in that you know, every time we receive food from God, every time we receive physical food, it is also a gift from God. Yes, indeed. And that we need to show thanksgiving for it. Um, and, and Calvin kind of blasts, um, kind of what clearly was contemporary culture in, in not being thankful and not being thankful for what's around you. In fact, he said, you know, these, these um, folks come and they, they, they eat food. It says they come with sacrilege, profane the gifts of God. Um, they eat like brutes um, as they are not giving thanks for <laughs> for the black <laughs> Helen's face. We eat like brutes. Huh? Eat like brutes. Not- well, I mean, to, you know, I'm thinking, I guess at times I resemble that remark. Yeah, but probably we all do. <laughs> uh, and of course, remind you, this is a time when, um, when we're trying to really bring people back into the church. Remember, this mm-hmm. is this is the church uh, you, you, of church. This is where Luther is. Making sure that the scripture is translated so you can read it, so you are a, a proper priest yourself, you know, priesthood of all believers, so that you can dialogue with God yourself intelligently. So you are being called to participate. And before, when you look at the whole medieval structure of the world, I mean, there's those who fight, those who work, those who pray. Mm-hmm. So prayer was not necessarily what the common folk did. Not that they weren't religious, but their it was the role of the monks exactly, and, the, and the nuns exactly. But yeah. their practices of religion were were really skewed, and it really wasn't because they read the Bible. They 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 had very limited knowledge of the of the faith. So this is all about training people. Mm. It was um, more about a tradition. Yeah, yeah, and and so we're rewriting traditions, mm-hmm. and this is important for us because this comes down to us today. Even as we start to watch church traditions slip away, some of the assumptions we make about how, uh, what a person of faith does and should do 
really come down to us from the Protestant Reformation. So when we talk about spiritual disciplines, mm. these are disciplines that that are really starting with the Protestant Reformation. Yeah, they were probably done by monks and nuns, but mm-hmm. in terms of the kinds of things we're expected to do as lay people, um, that this is where it comes from, you know. Um, and uh, this leads its way into songs and hymns, but also into these prayers that are that are out there. And I think I've mentioned before, yeah, they are writing prayers for every occasion, mm-hmm. um, and and. Uh, not just before meals and after meals and before bed. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. They always had a prayer going on that, that they it really wanted people to, to pray. Yeah. Now I know, for example, that the Catholic church has a missile that not only is weekly, but also daily. Mm-hmm. And I think the priests and the monks would probably be mm-hmm. using that. The people would not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess it, with the with the Protestant Reformation, then you begin to have books of prayer mm-hmm. that are more in the hands of people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and one of the big things you get are, are are called the house postilla, which are these guidebooks for the house father to lead his family mm-hmm. in prayer, and they literally have services for every day. So the things that once were the the space of those who prayed are now the space of the common person. So the common people are supposed to now really be attending worship before you might go in. And if you've been into any of the big cathedrals in Europe and they're doing midday mass, you can walk in, wander in, light a candle, wander out. It it has a very different sense of than a participatory mm-hmm. type of service where people are going and participating in the service um, in, in, in litany. It was Vatican II in the 1960s that changed the way in which the priests observed right. the mass, right? right? Because before that time, they, they observed the mass facing toward Absolutely. the table. Absolutely. And away from the from the from the congregation, right? You would just be wit- a witness to it, yeah. and you wouldn't be taking um, the bread and the wine in both kinds. You would just be taking the bread. Mm-hmm. Um, you would um, um, it would be in Latin, yeah. Um, so right, so all of that. I mean, the fact that it's in Latin, the fact that the priest isn't even facing you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's more about an adoration of Christ, and and you, by the way, get to get right. the benefits of it because you get to share the bread. Right, right. <laughs> So this is a huge shift, and 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 it's interesting to see how they view the crowd in this too. They they, they they when they're interpreting this passage, the Roman Catholics elevate the disciples. You know, mm-hmm. they're they're t- Jesus is teaching them. They're t- he's taking them up on the mountaintop. Right. They're learning. There. They're different than those other people. Mm. But wow. But the the Protestants will interpret this whole thing in terms of. No, he's feeding the crowd, yeah. and the crowd is part of the faithful. Yeah, um, they trust in his grace. So, yeah. what an interesting shift of of interpretation of this. Well, passage. that's kind of like what we saw last week with Mark's gospel. You know, it seemed like the crowd had more faith than the disciples did. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, particularly in Mark, right? Yeah, right. Uh, right. Maybe more than this than this particular one, mm-hmm. although. Um, you know, I think it's interesting to see how these lenses, how they come at it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the crowd here, the crowd here doesn't come off quite so well because they try to forcibly make him king. And later right. on, I mean, uh, really, one of the things we're going to see in in John chapter six is that the crowd eventually stops following Jesus because right. the things Jesus says to them are just too hard for them to understand. Well, of course, Calvin's going to note that even amongst this crowd, only a few of these people are going to be, if you will, of the elect. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So um, there's this, there's definitely a sense that, uh, that there's a little bit of a popularity contest going on. Mm. Um, well, and the disciples are going to come off with a, with this, with kind of a, a, a pretty high confession of faith. Uh, at the end of chapter six right. as well. So, exactly. Yeah, it's, exactly. it's a different kind of space. For it, it is, it is. But anyway, that's some interesting things to think about from the, the Protestant Reformation in terms of, of, of this passage. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. Hi, everybody. We are, we are back. And... I was thinking about this account in terms of the history of the church, and obviously everybody knew this account. I mean, it's in all four of the Gospels, and clearly 
John knew about the other accounts before he heard it. I mean, this would have been a story that definitely would have had an oral tradition and one that really everybody knew. So my question today for Alan is why John's account in John's way? Yeah, that's a good question, Christy. Um, you know, um, as we said, as I've said before, John's gospel is very different from the synoptics. I mean, all four gospels have their own theological interests, and and there is sort of a theology of Jesus and a theology of Christian discipleship that comes out of all four gospels, mm-hmm. and it's unique in each one. Um. Uh, there, there does seem to be, as I've said before, really much more of a theological enterprise going on with John because we sort of have, as we, as we said before, you know, John translates some of what Jesus says in the Synoptic Gospels into sort of language that is more communica- communicative to a, a broader audience, like instead of kingdom of God, eternal life, mm-hmm, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um. I think when you give John's gospel a close reading, especially when you read it, if you have a the ability to read John's gospel from the perspective of the Hebrew Bible, um, you see there's a there's a lot of alluding a lot of allusions to the Hebrew Bible in John's gospel, and it seems that there's a lot of just theological reflection going on just at the very foundation of John's gospel, even at the level of, of the details of the narrative. In fact, some scholars have taken the position that John's gospel was written as kind of an extended midrash or interpretation mm-hmm. of various Old Testament texts. And so um, I don't know that I would go quite that far because I, I, I think, you know, obviously the feeding of the 5,000 is something that's on all four gospels. Right. It's not just something that somebody made up. Right, you know? right. Um, so, but, but I, I do think that really impacts how we read John's account of this event because, as I mentioned before, you know, even the very details that John mentions are different um, and and the approach is very different. Um, um, in 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 John's gospel, Jesus is in this sort of progress of the process of revealing himself, not only to his disciples but also to others. You know, he is revealing his glory by the signs that he works. And I think we're meant to see this as another step in that process of revealing his glory. Mm. Um, I think also that in in John's gospel, um, um, you have you know this this sense that Jesus knows what he's going to do from the start. He right. knows what's going to happen right. from the start, and, and so you you have this idea of Jesus who is much more self aware, much more mm-hmm. confident of himself. Whereas you don't really get that impression so much that, that you know, yeah, beginning at a certain point in all the synoptic gospels, Jesus begins to predict that he's going to be killed mm-hmm. and be raised again. But before that, you know, you kind of wonder, you know, how is Jesus dealing with all the opposition he faces? Right. In, in John's gospel, Jesus is very calm, cool, and collected because he is at one with the Father, you know, right. constantly. And he, 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 he just, that's just how he works. You know, so so then you've got those two major things going on, but you've got all kinds of details in John's gospel that can point us in a lot of directions. It might be rabbit trails, but uh, at the same, but they might have been there on purpose, like you know the mountain that he right. they led them up the mountain. Well, in the old Hebrew Bible, the mountain is where the the Torah is given. Right. You know, at Sinai, right? right? The right. mountain is a place of revelation. The mountain is the place where Elijah meets God, and and mm-hmm. God tells him to go return upon his way. You know, and and it's hard to know to what extent. The details in John's gospel were shaped by his unique source and, and what to what extent they're shaped by some sort of theological mm-hmm. interaction with the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. It's, it, we'll never know. And the other, you know, I think the other thing that struck me about this conversation is, is as these folks are shaping Jesus, 
you, you can't quite jump into what actually Jesus experienced. You know, we can't exactly mm-hmm. jump into his head. You know, we don't, we, we, we desperately want Jesus writing and we, we have people writing about Jesus. Right. And, um, so that's an interesting, um, interesting thought as well. And of course my reformers would never claim that they were ever at odds with each other. Um, and I, I think, I think it's helpful for us to see Jesus at, the full humanity of Jesus who might've done all this questioning and the full Jesus who understood himself as, as um, the pure divinity. And I think it's an interesting interplay for us to examine, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. And, and, and in terms of John and, 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 and how he portrayed it, I, I think, um, I mean, I think it makes sense. I, I, that he he was definitely trying to um, pull us into the the imagery of the Old Testament there, mm-hmm. like you're talking about. I think it, I, I I kind of think that's a given. I mean, I, he, there's a reason he told us that they went to the mountaintop. I mean, that was very specifically done, and that was not in the others. But then, but like crossing the sea was in both, so it was mm-hmm. part of that that martyr narrative. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. not. Sh- I, I'm not sure what to make of it. I'm. I'm not an expert in that. I, in that. Well, and you know, again, this reminds me of of something of a con- part of a conversation we had before. I think about about the Gospels. Um, um, you know, Bult- Rudolf Bultmann was technically right when he said that you know the Gospels do not concern Jesus; they concern the Church because they give right. us the Church's view of Jesus. Yes, yes. But it's a bit of an overstatement because it was the Church's view of Jesus based on the oral tradition right. And, right. and perhaps even the documents that preceded the Gospels. Right. So it was it was not just something that they created out of thin air. It was myth in the sense of a uh, uh, s- sacred story that serves as as the foundational stories for our faith, but it was not myth in the sense of just you know far fetched tales that were just fabricated. Right, um, right, right. Um, so yeah, we don't have access to Jesus' own thoughts, Jesus' own you know motivations. Mm-hmm. We 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 only have access to what the gospel tradition. Mm-hmm said about Jesus. And and yet, you know, I think about things like even the way that the Synoptic Gospels describe what Jesus did with the bread is word for word. That's unique. Yeah, that is. And, and that you know, is. that doesn't happen. You know, if you spend any time comparing the Gospels with each other in Greek, you find that when the Gospels agree with each other verbatim. Mm-hmm. That is something that stands out. That does stand out because it's very rare. And um, it also reminds you that it, this was probably beyond even these even these Gospelers, yeah, right? Right. This, this had there become was something part of the... Prior to right, their efforts. Yeah. Right. So that, in other words, so for example, like with, with the whole idea of Q... As a, as a source for Matthew and Luke. Well, the basis for that is if you compare Matthew and Luke right. in the Greek text, there are 335 verses, I believe it is, that they have in common with each other. And the, and the, lang- the, the, the language of the, of the verses is, is very similar, even down to word-for-word agreement right. in cases. Yes. Which just doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. So no. something is borrowed. Something is the same. And the way in which they use it is, is individual. So it seems to be borrowing from a, not from each other, but from a, a, mm-hmm. a separate source. Mm-hmm. And and so those kinds of things would be the counterbalance to saying um, that the Gospels are not about Jesus. They're only about what the church believed. Well, it's about what the church believed about Jesus. Right, and right. it was based not just on their imagination or their wishful thinking. It was based on the, the oral tradition right. and the written tradition right. that was handed down to them. Yeah. I was thinking... Um, um, I'm friends with a, a, a specialist in storytelling. Um, so she studies stories, family stories. And, and you think about stories in terms of why we tell stories. Um, and I think of this on many levels. And there's, there's, there's different participants, right? There is the story level, um, the, the person that experienced it, that the story's about. 
there's the person that um, is telling the story and how they're describing the experiences there. And then there's a person that hears the story. And, and, and so they're going to bring in their own experience to it. And retells the and story. Retells the, yeah. and, and retells the story. So there's these, there's these different participants mm-hmm. in that reality. And I, 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 I've been thinking on this at many, many different levels um, and, and how this plays out and perhaps carves us a, a truth that's perhaps even broader than, uh, um, than what we know. But the, because we have all these four different writers who are telling the story to nth uh, number of of listeners, um, and how these different pieces come together, and then where do they agree? Like you mm-hmm. talked about, how these are so Im- these agreements are s- just pop up in our minds as um, kind of kind of like diamonds, you mm-hmm. know. Um, anyway, I, I'm not sure what the, to say about that, except that I think that's an as I think about John's portrayal of this and John's shaping of the story um, so that fits into his his narrative about who Jesus is um, as we listen and we come to understand who Jesus is too. Yeah, well, and I think I, I like your categorization of those who tell the stories, those who hear the stories, those who hear the stories and retell the stories because to some extent um, we might see someone like John or someone like Matthew as being a teller of the story. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, I think we'd have to say that the gospel writers are people who have heard the story and are retelling it. Oh, I think so. Because, I agree. Because I agree. what we have to understand is that these, these stories about Jesus would have been told in Christian worship from the beginning. Absolutely. And they would have been told in the preaching and, and they would have been told alongside the reading of Scripture from the Hebrew Bible. True. And so at a very early stage, we don't know exactly when, but at a very early stage, these, these stories would have been seen as having uh, equivalent significance to the Hebrew Bible Scripture readings in their Christian worship. Yes. And so, um, so th- these were not just... I mean, these were not just family legends. Right. These true. were not, and these were not just entertainment stories. These were sacred stories to them from a very early time. Right. And and and, and yet, you know, um, I think it's significant that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John each demonstrate the freedom that they had, perhaps we would say by the inspiration of the Spirit, to right. present the material that they had heard in their own unique ways, right. and we're the richer for it. A lot of people think it would be so much easier to believe in Jesus if I had been there and seen it. Well, there were a lot of people who were there, especially the disciples, who were there and well, they didn't understand it and didn't see it. That's right? exactly what Calvin says, right? How many yeah. of these, even these people at the, this don't ultimately believe? But what we have in the Gospels is we sort of have the answer key to the test. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because we know, as, as I've said before about my Matthew, Mark's Gospel, we know from the very first verse... right. Something that nobody in the, the in the whole gospel read, knows until the Roman centurion confesses that surely this man was the son of God. And, and so we sort of have the answer key, but we also have something more in that, you know, some people might say, well, the variety among the gospels is a problem. Why don't we just have one gospel? Well, the Syrian church father, Tatian, tried to come up with something like that. He, he did his right. own primitive gospel harmony called the diatessaron, which means through four. In other words, he took pieces of each of the four gospels and wove them together. And that was not accepted. What was chosen in the church was the four gospels over over one single narrative. And part of what I would say to that is, you know, one story is like a two-dimensional picture. Yes, yes. And it may be black and white, a two-dimensional black and white image. You know, mm-hmm. that can be beautiful. It can be insightful. You can you can see contours and you can see shapes that are that are fascinating in a two dimensional black and white picture. But to me, having four gospels that tell the same story in their own unique ways mm-hmm. is like having a full living color three dimensional image that we can rotate. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we can yeah. look at from different perspectives. And so we can and we can see different contours as we take that picture and we are able to rotate right. it. Right. You know, it's like having a full living color sculpture almost in our right. hands of right. Jesus. And we're able to see it from different perspectives. And and as we see it from different perspectives, we we get to we learn different lessons about Jesus. Right. And so that's why I decided to buck the lectionary and look at right. Mark's and gospel look at last holes. week. And, look at the whole and then look thing. at John's gospel this week, which might seem repetitive, but we get to see a little bit different image. Of I Jesus. think so too. Yeah. So now we've gone out and we're talking about these different images. I want to end our conversation today saying, and so what is what is the main theme we're supposed to grab? I mean, we talked about what our main theme was to drop, drop out of, of Mark's telling. Mm-hmm. What about John? I think with John, the main theme is that um, this is another of the means by which Jesus is revealing his glory and and is revealing basically the light of the kingdom of God that he was bringing into into the darkness, to use the language of John's gospel. Yeah. So think about that. Same story. Two different different takeaways, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope that um, gives you some things to chew on, everybody. Thanks. Thank you, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.